0: What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Got my co-host Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting. How you doing tonight, Elliot?
1: Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, actually, I'm a little bit down because Georgie is frustrating me a little bit. Let's just say, <laughs> man. I thought after we had Chris Jobin on here, right? Wait, I'm on two different times. And man, if you guys have not listened to those episodes with Chris Jobin, a Flatlander kennels um we did one on force fetch and one on e-collar conditioning and so georgie went into force fetch and and i thought i had her completely done with phase one which is just hold it and i made a little video i sent it to you jordan and i also sent it to chris Jobman, thinking okay i'm almost done and he's like yeah she's doing great he's like see if she'll um you know walk beside you holding it and see if she'll come into heel and so i i hadn't done that i just been doing sit hold sit hold and so I asked her to come, you know, come to heal to me. And ever since I've tried to make her do that, she has fallen apart with it. I mean, she's just regressed. She wants to chew that damn bumper so bad that she can't stand it. And I can get her to sit there and hold it. But if I ask her to move at all, she just falls. So I've had to totally go back to just almost ground one on stage one, just like sit hold, sit hold, sit hold. And then maybe I'll try to get her to move three steps towards me and not start chawing on it and dropping it again. I was like, I'm on like midweek three. And I know he said, this may take as long as, you know, between two months, three months. And I'm like, oh, surely I can get this done. in you know, a month and a half, you know, two months. I, I think this may take all of three months to finish this thing with this little bitch, for lack of a better word.
0: <laughs> Giving you a hard time there. Well. At least, like you said, three months. You still have time before waterfowl season to get her ready for opening day. And I think that's what all of us are looking forward to.
1: Well, and that just goes to show you the difference between a professional trainer and guys like us. Because, you know, if I didn't have Chris Jobman on speed dial, I thought I was done with phase one. And I would have moved on. And it's like this whole force fetch is so foundational. That I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of playing it up. I'm not really frustrated with a little bit cause I'd like to move on, but I'm, I'm good to go as slow as I need to, to make sure she is rock solid on the foundation of holding it. And, you know, really the who's dominant in this whole thing. And, and so I, I'm, it's going slow, but I'm, I will win. I will win. She's even gone to growling at me a little bit, like not like in anger, but when I try to bring her towards me a couple steps, it's almost kind of like I'm kind of mad, but I'm kind of playing, just kind of growling and, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. I got it. I got this. Yeah,
0: you got it. I got faith in you. It's just going to – you're just hitting a little hiccup, and one day she's just going to be like everything's going to click, and you'll be on and off to the races. So I think I think that's probably how it will work out. But, you know, until then, you're on the grind. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I'll, and I'll be so glad when it's my whole thing with this, you know, I mean, she's already a, tw- a full year old. And so I'm so glad that I got her right around Fourth of July of last year so I could take this whole long, slow time to try to do this thing right. I want to make sure that, that this little dog is as trained as I can possibly get her. And for, you know, amateur trainers like us, more time is better if you're, you know, because I we're not going to get through it as quickly as Freddie King or Chris chopping. Mean, we're just not. Yeah, you know. So I, I'm I'm glad to have all this extra time with oh, yeah. her to do
0: this stuff. That's good for sure. So the stuff I've been up to here recently is um, I actually got my garage cleaned up, <laughs> everything out of there. I saw that
1: video. I saw that video. <laughs> I didn't know you. I can't believe you're that disgusted about
0: some mouse turds. Come on. I mean, I, I didn't even show everywhere I found them but they were just like all <laughs> over everything. I was ticked I off. I thought
1: you were gonna vomit.
0: I wasn't gonna vomit, I was, I was just ticked off. Like I hate, like they were literally <laughs> like still like wet, like mouse pee and poop all <laughs> over my like, all over my bow case and like, like the dog treats literally like gnawed in half. I'm like how many mice and how long did that take for them to gnaw through everything? Like I don't even know. And then I go set a trap and like I don't catch any, I'm like, what the heck? That's like, so I don't understand how there's that many, or if they just all left when I cleaned it out, or, or maybe it's something. What'd you put
1: in the trap? What what kind of trap did you get?
0: Peanut butter. Actually, I made, I made one of those bucket traps with peanut butter and everything.
1: I uh, just use a regular snap their neck trap, man. You'll kill them. With that am yeah. sure.
0: I don't know. I've seen people with those bucket traps kill like ten in in one go. You know, I thought that yeah. I had like a mouse infestation, but. Literally have cat zero. So I don't know. Maybe it's just one mouse that's been in there since, you know, the beginning of duck season.
1: <laughs> I like that video. I did, I did really enjoy that video. If you guys haven't seen, make sure and check out Jordan's video on Duck Gun Chronicles. It's, <laughs> I liked it. I like time-lapse videos of cleaning out garage. I did one like that about a year ago, too. I just like the time-lapse stuff.
0: It's just yeah. cool. Yeah. So the other thing I'm working on is, well, it's part part of the garage, but... Um, part chief's kennel. So I got his whole kennel fenced in. And the next thing, I got a couple other steps I'm doing. I'm adding gravel under it and then um, horse stall mats and then uh, putting a doggy door from the kennel into the garage and making a dog box, like an enclosure in the garage where he can get from the outside of the kennel inside and have, you know, his bed and I can feed him in there and all that kind of stuff. So... I'm pretty excited to get it finished.
1: And you got to make sure. And I, I I'd like to see a follow-up update. You at least need to be putting on Instagram, like follow, tracking your mouse slaughter fest and the dog stuff see, that you talked about on that video. See, I, I filmed. At least send them to me. If you don't put them on social media, <laughs> I want to see it. Too. I
0: filmed the creation of the bucket and all that, but um, literally, I just haven't caught any mice, so it's like it'd be like posting a skunk video of hunting. <laughs> you know wait you'll get them you'll start killing (laughs) yeah i'm gonna at least i'll save the bucket and they'll be back this winter so yeah that's pretty funny
1: so what what did you think about the text i sent you of my daughter penelope's run in with that guy on youtube
0: oh man i don't know people are crazy
1: (laughs) can i even tell about that i thought that was pretty funny
0: (laughs) it's up to you man (laughs)
1: So I if you guys watch my videos, you probably have not seen this particular video. I a couple years ago I took my daughter it's More Penelope, a couple
0: years now, right?
1: Like, yeah, like three, four years. It was a long time. I think ago. It was four I mean, years, she's twelve yeah. now, so she was probably like seven or eight. And I took her out fishing to this farm pond. And I knew I'd been out there before and there was this crazy duck out there that's super aggressive. And it it had already like run after a couple of my boys and stuff. And so I was bringing my daughter there and I was telling her about this duck and she was talking so much trash as we were going about how she's not going to be afraid and how even if a crocodile came after, she wouldn't be afraid. And (laughs) she was just talking so much trash. So and I've got my video camera. So we uh, I'll I'll try to put this video on Fellowship of the Duck Guns Facebook page, too. Um, But. So this duck just comes running after, and man, my daughter gets so scared. She starts just running, and this duck's going after her. She spins around. She's got this lemonade in her hand. He's like tries to spike the lemonade on the duck, and and so the whole video is about her being attacked by this duck, basically. And so in the comments, and I, I just saw this comment because my daughter. That's the video's gotten like even last month it was my number two most viewed video <laughs> it's like four years ago and um so someone put someone guy just put it in there she that little girl deserved it and so i was i was showing this to her just the other day and this comment and she's like oh my gosh that guy's such a jerk tell him he's a jerk and so i type in there well she says you're a jerk and so like 10 minutes later he responds back, "Well, tell her she's a little bitch." <laughs> I don't to tell you. I if someone had called my daughter that in real life, I'd be really mad, but the fact that that guy called her that, I, it it just cracked me. I mean, I couldn't stop laughing. And she was so so mad. I said, "Well, Penny, what do you what do you want to say back to him?" <laughs> and, and she's like, "Well, I don't I don't want to say because I might get in trouble. <laughs> I'm like, what? What? She's like, I want you to give him the middle
0: finger emoji. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know if this, do you think this was bad parenting, Jordan?
0: <laughs> do I think that was bad parenting?
1: Well, that I actually put on there. Well, she says, like, <laughs> put the middle finger emoji on my 12-year-old daughter to this guy. It's Uh-oh. like I'm teaching her YouTube <laughs> drama. <laughs> drama. But- The whole thing was so funny. I just couldn't help it. But I knew it was probably a mistake when she was talking about it today. And she's like, that's the first time I've ever flipped anybody off. (laughs) I'm thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's a funny story for sure.
1: It was just so funny at the time. It was just so funny at the time. I just when she said that, I just couldn't resist. And I'm sure that guy is being good natured about it, understanding it's funny. Although calling a 12 year old a bitch is, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, in, in the video, she was like eight. She was so little. Yeah. So, but you know, it's, it's
0: all in good fun.
1: I, th- I felt it to be just good natured jousting, and you know, yeah. But it
0: was really funny. <laughs> all right, now with that family friendly uh, update to the podcast, let's jump right to our our partners. So first, I'd like to give a big thanks out to um, uh, out to Banded. So if you guys haven't checked out Banded, Banded.com, housing the Avery Greenhead gear and Banded gear all on their their website, Banded.com. Um, one product that Ellie and I are both a big fan of that we used all season season long are the Banded 2.0 waders. Um, very very solid waders, uh, breathable and 1600 gram boots. So they keep you warm from your feet. And then up from there, you know, they do have options for insulated. If you want to go that that route and I didn't go that route, um, you know, just layer up and you're good to go. But you know, once you go to breathable, you're never going to go back to, to neoprene. We've been hearing that from everybody, um, as well. So definitely a solid choice, uh, for waders on them and they have tons of other gear to check out as well.
1: So before I talk about HTR Innovations, I'm feeling a little guilty. I just want to apologize to everyone that I had my little daughter do that. Bad choice. If I let <laughs> anyone down, please forgive me. So, all right. So HDR <laughs> Innovations, oh, they've got uh, you know some really high-quality American-made products that I, I have used in a lot of my hunts. Um their A-frame has, has completely changed my hunting life, honestly. Before we used to make sure we were getting kayaks into every situation we could and we would take our big boat and we would stack kayaks all over the big boat and then take it up a river, get the kayaks out, drag them through the woods so we could hide in the marsh. And it's so much easier now. We don't have to do it. We just we've got a big sled. We put the A-frame in it. We go up the river and now all we have to do is drag a sled instead of three kayaks to hunt in these places and get totally covered. So if you have never hunted out of an A-frame, go to HTR Innovations. You can get 10% off and free shipping with the product code duck, space gun, capital D-U-C-K, space, capital G-U-N. There are some other other products there that you would be really interested in in viewing. So um, go give a Google search to HTR Innovations and check out those products.
0: Awesome. Uh, Ellie, I did not make to. I did not mean to make you feel guilty.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. You, you didn't. I'm just sitting here. Well, I've got that side, side YouTube channels like FDH and Faith, where we like witness to people and everything. And I know there's like a subset of people that don't get that 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 sense of humor and think that I've like let them down. And and I just think it's funny. It's funny. So you didn't make me feel guilty. No, r- I just, real life again. I just know real. there's a subset of people that are going to be <laughs> disappointed in me. But it was hilarious, guys. It yeah. was. It just was. It was funny.
0: <laughs> yeah. Real life, you got to keep it real. Sometimes we do stupid stuff. Sometimes it's funny, and sometimes we share it. So, Um, all righty. Also like to give a big thanks out to Gunner Kennels. Um, If you guys haven't checked out Gunner Kennels, they are American-made dog kennel for transporting your um, dog from point A to point B. Um, Ellie and I both have been using them for a few years now. Um, You throw it up in the, the bed of your truck, Strap it down and you're good to go. It is five-star crash test rated. Uh, The double wall rotomolded molded is their patent on that. Um, So that's where they beat out all the other competitors with their their strength. And, um, you know, I say this every time because I'm amazed by it, but uh, when you go see the testimonial videos of people who flipped over um, and it's landed on their kennel and their kennel withstands the accident, the flip, everything, and their dog survives. Um, I know for me, Um, how crushed I've felt when Chief (laughs) has ran away and I thought I wasn't going to find him. And I'd feel the same way, um, you know, obviously even worse if if I lost him in an accident. So uh, for that, you know, uh, the best kennel you can buy, uh, the Gunner Kennel, um, and it's going to protect your dog, your hunting companion, man's best friend, and and your investment. Um, You know, a lot of hunting dogs cost a lot of money, and not only that, but we put a lot of time and work into um, getting them to... Um, be uh, really really good hunting dogs as well so definitely check out uh, gunner kennels code duck gun 10 over there as well for 10 percent off all righty let's go ahead and jump right into the podcast tonight's guest is brad and um, he's going to share a lot of information on the harvest survey so definitely excited Jordan for before that we,
1: before we jump into that let's you know one of the really amazing things about this podcast is getting to talk to guys like Brad Bortner. And when he contacted us, it's it's just an absolute honor. His resume is unbelievable, and I, I asked him to send over some information to me about him. And I honestly, I just want the listeners to understand um, kind of his background before we go in. So I'm going to read kind of his his credentials because I think they're worth knowing. Um, before he starts talking. So he Brad Bortner is retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service after 33 years as a migratory bird biologist and manager. He served as chief division of migratory bird management in the FWH headquarters from 2011 to 2017. Previously, he served in Portland, Oregon as chief division of migration bird and habitat programs, Pacific region, front, s FWS from 1992 to 2011. He also served as a migratory bird biologist and supervisor at the Wildlife Research Center in Laurel, Laurel, Maryland. During his career, Brad was involved in many partnership efforts to conserve and manage migratory birds and their habitats at International national, and regional scales. He represented the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service internationally on migratory bird issue in meetings in Russia, Japan, Mexico, and Canada. He served as the executive secretary to the U.S. FWS Regulations Committee, seeing migratory bird hunting regulations in the U.S., briefed many members of Congress on issues, and met with many hunter groups. Brad is an avid bird hunter and outdoorsman. He also carves his own decoys, trains his retrievers, and is a diehard diver hunter. This guy's the real deal and he's got more information in his little finger than Jordan will ever acquire. <laughs> you like how I left and myself that's the out truth. on our... <laughs> Army as well. But this it's just it's such an honor to be able to talk to guys like this and without yep. this podcast we don't get to you know. So yeah. you guys are in for a treat tonight.
0: Yep. Yeah we're definitely pumped to share this kind of you know uh, podcast with you guys. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Got my co-host, the gray-bearded Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting. And our guest tonight is Brad. He is the retired chief uh, for the Division of Migratory Bird Management in the Fish and Wildlife Headquarters. Um, And he actually reached out to us and has some awesome information on um, HIP and, you know, the importance to that. For us in migratory brood hunting. So, how are you doing tonight, Brad?
2: I'm doing great, guys. It's a pleasure to join you. Uh, thanks for having me on.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Um, me and Elliot have actually been able to take some time and and look at uh, some of the documents you sent over to us. Um, and it's a super interesting. Um, it's super interesting information. Kind of to, to deep dive into that, and we're really excited to. Um, kind of hear everything you got to say about it um, for us and for our listeners
2: okay well'm I'm, I'm um, excited to talk to you about it um, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding by hunters of, of what hip is and what it's used for and how uh, the waterfowl management community estimates harvest and what we do with the data so um, I thought talking to you guys uh, could reach out to all your uh, all your listeners and and get some of that information out in the hands of the guys who are the real partners in the whole data collection effort. Awesome. Well, Uh, Jordan and I were
1: looking at the charts before we uh, got on here with you. And I don't, I'm not sure if you know this, but I, I hunt Kansas and Jordan hunts Indiana. So the charts that you, that you gave us are um, it's like County by County, how the uh, harvest information and it just, Rub salt in the wounds for Jordan because Indiana didn't <laughs> fare too well on those charts.
2: <laughs> uh, that's we, just eye candy. I know a lot of people love to just sit there and look at it and compare their their county or their state to other counties and other um, other states. So you can spend hours just deep diving into that and, yeah. and looking at, and 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 saying where do I where do I need to go hunting? And I think there's <laughs> um, a lot of great information there, and all of that comes from um, the participation of, uh, hunters and the information that they share with the state and the Fish and Wildlife Service.
0: Awesome. Well, real quick, before we, uh, jump kind of into the, the nitty gritty of, of all that, um, let's hear a little bit about you and, and kind of, you know, where you grew up and where you started hunting and, and, uh, let's start with that.
2: Well, um, I grew up in the Navy. My father was a career, uh, uh, Navy man. He, uh, enlisted in. World war, and World War II as a, um, a first-class radio operator, and, he, and after the war, he um, went to officer candidate school, and he went all the way up to become a captain in the Navy. Um, so I moved all over as a kid, but I spent most of my time um, in high school um, in Annapolis, Maryland, on the, on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, and that's where I got exposure to you know, lots and lots of waterfowl, waterfowling uh, history, um, and developed my interest in in uh, in waterfowl.
0: So that's definitely a, a super historic area for uh, waterfowl and, and a lot of notable and, and um, famous uh, places that have to do with waterfowl um, out there. So uh, definitely a, a cool way and a cool place to get into waterfowl. Do you kind of remember like a moment um, – that, that it kind of clicked or a moment where you knew that waterfowl was going to be somewhat of a, of a lifelong passion for you?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I can remember, um, I played sports and I can remember and our sports field was right on the, the shores of the Chesapeake Bay. And I can remember, um, in many practices watching, um, canvas backs and, and what we used to call whistling swans flying in and landing along the shores of the Bay. <laughs> and then one day, in the middle of practice, um, I saw my first bald eagle, um, and that was that was back in the in the early '70s when bald eagles were just being protected by the Endangered Species Act and were pretty rare. And it was just one of those times, that I just was like, "Wow, that's cool." And um, uh, you know, I I kind of said gee, I'd really like to um, have a, about 10th grade, I decided that I wanted to be a, a wildlife refuge manager. And um, <laughs> and I've been fortunate enough to follow that dream. I never became a refuge manager, but I uh, became a, uh, a waterfowl biologist and ended my career as the, as the head migratory bird biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Service in, in headquarters.
1: I'd say you did pretty well for yourself <laughs> to get all the way... To that, to that level. I'm curious about Chesapeake Bay. So then did you do mostly diver hunting, um, in that area or was it puddle ducks and divers?
2: Um, mostly, mostly, um, uh, well, a mixture of black ducks and, and divers. Um, uh, my first, my first duck was a lesser scoff, um, and then Canada geese. And, uh, I happened to be, um, uh, friends with a family that, uh, had, sh- shorefront property, and we could hunt uh, ducks, um, both divers and, and dabblers, and Canada geese on their farm, and also we shot a lot of doves, and um, and spent a lot of time kicking around that farm and, and getting exposed to, you know, both, um, you know, upland birds and waterfowl, and um, so I, I guess I probably shot more doves and more Canada geese um, in Maryland than I did ducks. Hmm.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, some, some cool, uh, and historic places to hunt. And I, I'm definitely a little bit, uh, jealous that you you were able to get out there and, and do that kind of hunting. I'm still, uh, on my bucket list to get out in that area.
2: So well, there's, it's a great historic place and it's got a, a rich, rich history. Um, and I, I certainly benefited from growing up there.
0: Awesome. Um, so kind of going into that same um, category, I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but um, how did you get into the migratory bird uh, biology?
2: Well, you know, um, like I said, in, in about 10th grade or so, I was, um, you know, starting to think about what do I want to do for a career, and I got interested, and I ended up volunteering with um, – the Maryland, uh, department, of, uh, what's now, you know, fish wildlife and parks and, and, um, and volunteered with the waterfowl biologist there, um, guy who's retired now, but by the name of Larry Heineman. And he, he introduced me, um, as a, you know, as a high school student to catching and, and banding, uh, Canada geese. And through him and others, I got exposed to, uh, folks on, uh uh, aquatic plants in the chesapeake and then on to a professor at johns hopkins university who was working on whistling swans and um you know rocking netting 400 uh whistling swans and banding them uh, and putting net colors on them was was a pretty exciting thing for a, a high school student so i went off to yeah. college to uh, become a waterfowl biologist and um Uh, going into my senior year, I was talking to my major advisor, and he said, you know, there's a research station in Canada that develops really good waterfowl biologists, and, um, you know, you ought to look at a summer internship there, and I I did, and that was the Delta Waterfowl Research Station, um, which at that point has now grown into Delta Waterfowl, Um, but it was a place where... um, there was 20 or 30 or 40 um, graduate students or others that were um, interested in studying waterfowl. Their professors would come through. All the top waterfowl professors in the U.S. and Canada would come through with their students during the course of the year. And after, after a summer there, um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and, and that I wanted to be a waterfowl biologist.
0: Awesome. So I guess, um, you know, it might be a little interesting to hear um, what kind of the day-to-day, um, kind of job is of, a you know, migratory biologist. And I know that probably differs all across the country. Um, but I think, you know, as far as duck hunters, um, the information on exactly what goes on with all that might be, um, something that's interesting to hear about.
2: Yeah, that's, um, it's, I can tell you what my experience is and then, um, you know, I can tell you what, um, many of my colleagues or friends did in the course of their careers and they're much different. And I mean I, um, when I got out of graduate school I ended up going to Patuxent Wildlife Research Center in Laurel, Maryland uh, almost back at home um, but it's a world famous uh, waterfowl research center and, and um, the management biologists are, are located there with the research biologists so um, it's a very um, uh, heady experience where the re- you know the top waterfowl researchers and, and managers um, are all located on the same campus and, and interact a lot. And um, when I was there, I was a, a management biologist, so I participated in uh, conducting surveys and banding for birds um, in the U.S. and in Canada, going out and, and helping. Um, Count, count birds for our population surveys, going to um, the wing bees to determine um, age and sex of the harvest of um, wings that we'll talk about more later. But then I also got to sit down with the researchers and take that, take all of those information and, um, and, and try to synthesize it, learn about all the research that was going on across the country um, and of uh, and, and you know to sound sound uh, kind of funny, just uh, having great thoughts and you know sitting down and having a having a beer on a Friday afternoon with uh, half a dozen um, world class waterfowl researchers you learn an awful lot and um, stimulates your thoughts about uh, what the what the important resource questions are and and what the important management questions are
0: Awesome. so let's go ahead and uh, dive into, uh, what exactly is hip and kind of the importance it has to waterfowlers.
2: Before I do that, let me, let me add one more thing about, um, you know, experience as a water, as waterfowl biologist. Um, so you can edit it back onto my other, um, uh, comment, but the, um, uh, you know, so my experience, my experience with waterfowl biology and everything else was conducting on the ground um, surveys and management activities. But I worked with colleagues also that uh, fly the planes, um, water, you know, the, what we call flyway biologists that fly the planes mm-hmm. um, and count ducks, um, you know, all the way up to the Arctic Circle um, biologists uh, at the state level who conduct the state operations. Every state has a has a migratory bird biologist who um, runs the management program in that state, um, work interfaces with the uh, with the hunters in that state, um, helps um, figure out how they want to manage waterfowl uh, within the state. So, um, the the waterfowl management community is uh, got lots of separate jobs, uh, but quite often um, you end up working with people uh, that you went to graduate school, they have, or you went to school at some point, or you worked in um, in different uh, in, in different agencies. But because we're all working on waterfowl, it's a um, it's a a large uh, kind of fraternity um, or sorority, uh, whatever the, the proper term is there. But um, you end up working with people, job after job, location after location. And you know, um, you may have gone to graduate school together. Your major advisors may have gone to school together. Um, so you end up knowing all these people and, and interacting with them, um, and kind of melding all the different uh, expertise and experiences um, as a as a management community. Very
1: cool. There are so many waterfowlers that would just dream about having your job. I'm curious as you were in 10th grade and you decided to do it and it became your life's passion did it live up to your expectations um did it did it exceed your expectations as far as your daily excitement level about your job and and your passion for waterfowl <laughs>
2: it it exceeded my it exceeded my expectations more than i could have ever imagined i am um, a lucky man <laughs> um, um, i i uh, one wasn't sure i'd ever get a job in it um, and then two, um, never expected that I would get hired for the various positions that I, I, had. And I actually joked that I would have never hired me for any of the positions I had once I got <laughs> into being the manage, uh, manager, manager <laughs> position, but, um, I guess there's so many smart people out there and, and, dedicated, hardworking people, um, that, um, I feel very fortunate for the career that I had.
1: So did you end up back in Maryland or where, where did you reside now?
2: Uh, I, I'm in Washington state. Um, okay. I ended, um, um, uh, yeah, so I, um, in my career, I, I worked at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center after graduate school and, um, and, uh, and had a couple different jobs, different biology jobs. And I became a, um, a, a, a supervisor of, um, a section called um, the population assessment section, where we had a bunch of population biologists who took all this information and used it to try to understand the effects of, of regulations on, on populations of, of migratory birds and also um, how those regulations affected hunter behavior and, um, uh, and how hunter behavior affected waterfowl populations so, how many ducks did we shoot? How many could we shoot? And whether could we shoot? Were we shooting too many, or whether we could shoot more? Um, and then in 1992, I I got a job. Ju- I got a chance to move to Portland, Oregon, to be the regional chief of migratory birds for all the wa- all the migratory bird issues in California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, um, and the Pacific Islands, and um, I, I jumped at that chance uh, to come out west, and I did that job for 19 years. Um, and then um, there were some retirements, retirements in, in headquarters and it wasn't clear who was gonna take the migratory uh, bird sheep position being a you know a, a very important position. And um, between my, my wife and my friends, they, they said, Brad, you've got to go take it, and I—I um, um, uh, had some reservations about doing that, but um, decided that I owed it to um, um, to the migratory bird um, staff and to the migratory bird resource and to the um, um, to the American public to you know take my expertise and go there. Very cool, and I'm
1: I'm just a little surprised to see that Washington I'm on the charts you sent. Is number ninth in the U.S. in duck harvest. I never would have thought Washington was that high. Ninth is <laughs> that's incredible.
2: Well, I, I I jokingly tell people there aren't any, there are no waterfowl in in Washington <laughs> State. Uh, yeah, go to go to Arkansas, go to Louisiana, go to Texas, uh, go to California. There's, we don't have any we don't have any ducks or geese here. So did it, <laughs> did your re- research at a all? There's reason I retired. There is a reason I retired here.
0: Yeah. I was gonna say, did your your research play into um where you decided to uh go ahead and retire?
2: <laughs> yeah, I've um I've I've had the uh, opportunities to hunt all over the United States and um you know, in the Pacific Flyway we have a um a long season and a um in a liberal bag limit. Um and we we loved living out here. Um, but for waterfowl hunter, um, uh, this was the place I wanted to be. Awesome. So that's where I, that's where I retired. There you go.
0: So cool. Kind of hearing you talk a little bit, I kind of had, um, a couple more questions pop up into my head before we move on to, uh, hip, but, um, kind of in your, you, you had a, I mean, a long career, uh, in waterfowl biology and your, your research, Um, and there's a couple questions that I kind of, um, was thinking about. And one of them would be, you know, what was the biggest change? Cause I I know that there was a lot tighter restrictions on waterfowl, um, in, uh, you know, the seventies through eighties and maybe even through nineties. Um, you know, Elliot's talked about that as well in Kansas having their mallard bag limit at two you know, all the way till now. So what are the biggest changes you've kind of seen, um, through your whole career?
2: Um, well, you know, the analytical techniques and the understanding of population biology have changed a lot. And, um, and, and you know, your listeners probably are aware of the, you know, that the, the way the States and the Fish and Wildlife Service work together through the flyway system. And, um, the, um, the flyway system is such a strong system uh, of interaction and, and discussion um, and reaching management strategies. And that's um, evolved uh, over the course of my career and become much more um, cooperative, um, much more um, data, um, uh, you know, uh, Science-oriented and and you know relying on data to, to base management decisions, and we've learned so much more about how populations work, how um, how regulations affect hunting and and, and um, waterfowl populations that um, we no longer just kind of uh, stating opinions, but actually can um, uh, can do a whole lot more with um, uh, understanding and applying. Some of that into the regulations, and and ultimately that ended up, um, uh, you know, in in the development of the adaptive harvest management system, and being um, put into place in 1995, and pretty much has been unchanged except for you know technical improvements um, since 1995, and that's that's added an awful lot to um, our understanding. Um, also brought consistency and regulations to, to hunters and a little more predictability. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, would say that the, just the quantitative techniques and, and the, um, ability of all the biologists to, to look at and understand the data and agree on the management strategies has been the, the biggest change over the course of my career. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Jim. Um, so the other question, um, that, I, that I'd like to ask, um, you know, with the, with the data that you'd gathered, um, and one thing that you talked about and one of the articles you sent over to us is, is hunter, uh, population. And so, um, you know, it's like you said, it's good to have the data opposed to like just opinions. And some people would say, you know, with the number of waterfowls, you know, waterfowl hunters, um, it has decreased over the years. And then there'd, there'd be some people who'd have the opinion, oh, When, you know, a big event like Duck Dynasty gained popularity, um, you had an increase. um, And some people say, ah, there's not a decrease in waterfowlers at all. Um, I have people that are setting up too close to me all the time. And so they feel like there's not a decrease. So where is that kind of lie as far as um, over the years? um, Are we, like, what direction are we heading in with the number of waterfowlers? Well, there's...
2: Waterfowl. I mean, the peak of number of waterfowlers um, would have been about 1970, and there's been a long-term de- decline in the number of uh, people uh, migratory bird hunting um, since that since uh, that peak. Um, and you know that's backed up with data um, from you know duck stamp sales, and you know if you look at individual um, uh, license sales within states, uh, and also in, in some of our surveys now. Um, I know it, it feels like there are crowded situations and there are more hunters, but, um, you know, I think a lot of that comes down to um, access and having places to go. And, you know, we've lost a lot of habitat. Um, people have closed off a lot of habitat. Um, a lot of places have been subdivided or, or you know, um, farming patterns have changed where it's difficult to get access to, um you know to goose fields or or the, the duck slew in the back 40 um so things have changed a lot in that um 50 years since 1970 also um and so you may have crowding but it's because you've got you know, a fewer number of you know fewer hunters but they're all packed into the the you know, the wildlife refuge, the state wildlife management area, or, you know, those few um, places where they can gain access from, from private landowners.
0: Awesome. Yeah. That's definitely uh, some good insight on that. So let's go ahead.
2: You know, that's, that's been my, my experience.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's go ahead and jump over to uh, the hip section. Elliot, you want to go ahead and, and lead through this?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Sure, so I, mean, I-, I just start start off with just what is HIP and what's the history behind it?
2: Sure. HIP is a, um, is the Harvest Information Program. And that's, um, that is the front end of the, um, of the method that the, um, States and and Fish and Wildlife Service used to estimate, um, the harvest by, um, by water, by migratory bird hunters. And, um, what happened is in prior to about 1992, there was no way to estimate the number of doves that were being harvested, or woodcock, or some of the um, uh, webless migratory game birds. And for years, you know, since the 60s, the Fish and Wildlife Service had um, estimated the number of um, uh, duck hunters and 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 their harvest. Based upon sales of duck stamps, and and for those listeners who remember, when when you went to the post office to buy your federal duck stamp, sometimes in some locations you would get a postcard asking you to participate in the uh, in the harvest survey. And uh, what happened is, postal service in in the early nineties was really um, becoming reluctant to hand out the postcards and delay people when they came in. And even some people had a hard time getting uh, duck stamps. So uh, the waterfowl management community of the states and the Fish and Wildlife Service realized that they needed a new sampling frame, uh, a new way to get names and addresses of, of hunters. So um, cooperatively they developed what's called the Harvest Information Program. And um, in the 49 states where there is migratory bird hunting, um, uh, hunters that are going to hunt migratory birds are required um, to um, give their name and address, and then provide the answers to, um, you know, five or six or seven questions on what their uh, migratory bird uh, uh, harvest was in the previous year. And those um, those questions. Are meant to basically identify um, how avid of a hunter um, you are and um, once that information gets to the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service uses that to, um, to sample hunters. The, the, the reason is, is and, you know, I think all of your listeners have probably heard the old adage that um, you know, 90% of the ducks were killed by 10% of the hunters. Mm-hmm. And finding those hunters that are um, very avid, and and what their estimates are, uh, or how many birds they they take, um, of it can be you can sample them much more efficiently if you have that um, their answer uh, up front. And um, so the Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, separates out and samples people from each of those different groups um, at a different rate uh based upon how many ducks they reported killing the the previous year. So que- And so uh,
0: go qu- ahead. A question on that. So um you know as waterfowlers we're probably all familiar with filling those questions out. Um and I guess my question is it seems like uh as far as like the waterfowl numbers, because I've answered no on some of the other ones, but the the section I'm familiar with is the waterfowl numbers and Um, it seems like it's somewhat vague for gathering data because, um, I believe it's one to 11 or 11 or more. And so I I guess my question would be, um, why, why it's a a vague question opposed to a more specific number.
2: Yeah. So, um, and this is a, a major misconception that I think a lot of hunters have is when they're answering those questions, that is not the... That is not the harvest survey. Mm -hmm. That is, that's just the hunter saying, this is how successful I was last year. And it's, um, uh, it's just to, you know, kind of put you in, oh, okay, well, you're a very successful hunter. We're going to sample you um, and send you um, a request to participate in the, um, in the harvest survey um, because you are very successful. And and we're going to get a better estimate we lump all the different successful hunters together, um, you can sample those at a different rate than you the ones that aren't very successful, or the ones that didn't um, kill very many or didn't kill any last year, um, and it becomes efficiency. And um, the also, it, it helps determine, um, you know, make the, make the survey more accurate and more precise, and I don't want to, um, you know, bore your listeners with all the statistical definitions of those things, but um, those those questions are just helping um, uh, are just you identifying yourself as a hunter on um, how successful you are. So and, you know. Um, so basically, that's, it,
0: that's, it it separates us into the groups that then they pull from to get the surveys.
2: Sure and. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, you know, buying your lottery ticket, you know, you put yourself in um, the bucket that has the, the least number of tickets or the most number of tickets, uh, depending on what you want to get and, and hope that you can chain, uh, change the odds. And and so if you um, are one of those 10% of the hunters that, that, um, that gets 90% of the ducks, um, you'll be sampled at a different rate than um, if you are, you know, one of those hunters that's yeah, I just went hunting because my buddy invited me and I've never, I haven't been before and I might not go again. Um, you know, um, uh, it's, there's not a lot of, um, utility in trying to efficiently or accurately predict how many, how how many ducks are, are taken by those people.
1: So that's a great segue to move into the national harvest survey. So, um, are are the, the hip the initial questions that when you buy your stamps and your license that categorizes you into different groups and then each of the groups receive the national harvest survey but the those waterfowlers or those it's not all waterfowlers it's migratory those migratory bird hunters um who hunt more often they're more likely to get one but all groups are still sampled
2: all groups are still sampled um the, the other thing about those questions is it identifies you as a duck hunter, it identifies you as a, um, a, a a goose hunter or a dove hunter, or in the case of some of the you know more rare species like rails or snipe or gallinules, it identifies you as a hunter of those things. And you can imagine if you tried to find all of the rail hunters within um, all the migratory bird hunters in the country, um, it'd be like fishing for a, a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean how many how many guys do you know that hunt for rails? Uh,
0: I don't know any personally. Yeah, you do. I yeah, I do. And so. <laughs>
2: yeah. I've been on a couple so rails. <laughs> so if if you're a rail hunter and you identify that you're a rail hunter, you're you're much more likely to be sampled than if you're a, um you know, if, than if you're a duck hunter um uh, you know, because uh, finding finding those rail hunters or those Snipe hunters is much more difficult. But to, Elliot, to answer your question, all, all of the different categories are sampled, um, but it's just a matter of statistical efficiency on on what the rate is in each one of those. You know, because if you just if you just went to all if you just went to all migratory bird hunters and randomly asked them, um, you'd have to you'd have to send out many 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 more sample uh, or you know. Request to participate in the survey. Then, if you then if you could break them up into categories.
1: Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. So, with the national harvest survey, um, how many hunters are selected for that, and is that per state or is that just over the United States? And what data is kept, and what's the data used for?
2: Um, okay, so Elliot, the, the, you know that's bringing us to the to the what's called the, the diary survey or the mail questionnaire survey. And, um, you know, once your name is drawn, the Fish and Wildlife Service will send you either a letter or a link to a web page and ask you to track how many times you went in hunting, how many birds do you take, and and what county you shot those birds in, in in your state, the state that you're being sampled for. Um, And I can't tell you how many um, of hunters are sampled um, across the country. Um, it happens in a, on a rolling basis, um, and um, it, it all is a function of how many hunters are expected in that state, in that category, and that that varies by year, and the, the, the statisticians have a way of, of pulling that, um, that information out. Um, but if you are drawn, you're sent a letter, um, and those of your members or your listeners who have gotten the re- request while I was chief. Got a got a letter from me, signed signed by me, saying, "Would you please, part, you know, consider participating in this survey?" And what happens is, um, you know, you get this form or a, um, or a web addre- um, address. Um, you can just set set up an account, and at the end of the day, you're just supposed to mark down how many how many birds you shot and um, where you were and what the date was and uh, once you fill up that form, you send it into the Fish and Wildlife Service, and, and if you're going to the season's still going, they'll, and you, you know, want to continue on, you'll get another one back. Um, and what data is kept? The Fish and Wildlife Service, once they get your uh, name and address, it sends you the mail questionnaire survey. But once they get that back from you, they don't keep any personal information anymore. They just are looking at how many how many birds did you take in what state and what county. And uh, then they start compiling that across all of the counties in your state, and all the states in the flyway, and all the states and flyways in the country. And that um, that that is used for national reports. Um, and and you can I can provide you you with um, links to places online where your listeners can can go look at it. But those reports say okay in 2017 in Louisiana, this is how many uh, ducks were shot total of that. This is how many of them were mallards. And then compare, you can compare that number to um, 2018. Or since um, 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 uh, you said you were from, at um, uh, least Jordan was from Indiana, um, mm-hmm. you you can compare the, uh, the number of ducks shot in Indiana, uh, uh, to the number of shot in Illinois or Iowa or, or Louisiana or Arkansas or California um, And you know you can look at and we can also you take the next step um, after the mail questionnaire survey um, and, and you are asked to participate in the parts collection survey or what's known as the wing survey is you, they're asked to provide a wing off of each duck you shoot or, the tail feathers off of every goose that you shoot, and from that we can estimate uh, how many um, how many ducks or geese, and what species, what age, what sex they are, um, uh, mathematically. And you can look at um, what the number number one species in Indiana is versus the number one species in Florida or or California, or how many pintails are shot in California compared to the entire Mississippi Flyway.
1: And you, you keep track of age, age as well, like um, what, whether it's young yeah, birds keep, or more
2: mature birds. Of, yeah, keep track of age and sex um, information, and you can, um, in that report, you can look at long term trends and and ha- how many males are being shot or how many females are being shot or whether they're adult birds or young birds and kind of get an index to how recruitment was or what. what Biologists call recruitment, but basically, how good of a hatch you had this past year, mm-hmm. and um, and all of that information is helpful in evaluating regulations and determining, gee, if there should be some changes. You know, c- can you shoot more um, males? Can you shoot more females? Can you? Um, or, gee, or, um, we didn't have a very good hatch. Maybe we, um, you know, only harvested adult birds, uh, which is your, you know, basically your breeding stock. So all of it's very important information for um, assessing the status of populations and whether or not the hunting regulations are sustainable um, or whether there's more opportunity or um, that could be provided or less opportunity.
1: I don't know if you, if you know this off the top of your head, but I'd be really, really curious. We've talked a lot over the last year about how hunters in the South, you know, down in Arkansas and Louisiana, they feel like by the time the ducks get that far, they're just a lot more wary and a lot smarter than they are up north. And and the conversation that Jordan and I have had is that, you know, if, if I'm in Kansas and I'm hunting a bird in January, that bird has been hunted every day of the season. So why would a bird farther south of me be any smarter? Because it's it's had the same amount of hunting pressure as far as number of days and, and kind of what one hypothesis that Jordan and I came up with, and why this might actually be the case, is in your Dakotas. I'm I I'm in the Central Flyway, so I talk Central Flyway states because that's what I know. But Canada, North Dakota, and South Dakota, maybe more of the birds that are harvested are the young, dumb ones, and then as they go south, they're smarter, more because of age and what and experience than anything else. And so, do you know off the top of your head, or if there's any way to find out the data are are the birds that killed in like north dakota and south dakota typically the younger birds and then the ones that make it farther south are those two three old year olds that have you know a lot more experience under their belt and just know how to not get killed
2: um i think there's probably validity to your hypothesis um you know certainly um, in, north and, in North and South Dakota, you know, early in the season, you're treating a lot of brown ducks, um, you know, a lot of immatures. Um, and I'd have to pull the data uh, and and uh, and look at it, but you could probably look and and find data that would support your argument that that you know the young ones are, are the most the, the young ones are definitely more vulnerable, and they may be harvested further north than the the, the southern ones. And that the proportion of the harvest in, in Arkansas or Louisiana is is shifted towards um, uh, adults, um, and I'm sure those analyses have been done. Uh, the other thing to remember, though, is you know sometimes birds will just leave the prairies and go directly um, over um, you know all of the um, the, the mid latitude states and go directly to some of their southern wintering ground. It's hard. It's kind of hard to generalize. Mm-hmm. Until, you, uh, until you start looking at which species, some of the, um, the telemetry studies that have been done, um, some of the new technologies utilizing um, cell phone uh, towers and everything else that track birds would just blow you away uh, and you start looking at, at how birds move and some, some kind of move down slowly and some move very quickly.
1: Yeah, that that is we we find that frustrating as far as how to figure out the migration here in Kansas. So, like for teal season, um, we don't have a lot of birds that um, breed here in Kansas, but up in Nebraska they do, and obviously the Dakotas. So, as teal season arrives, you know we start arrives we start getting a few trickling of of teal and everything, and then maybe um, right at the beginning we'll have some good hunting, and then it seems it'll seem like well everything's still up north of us everything's still up north of us you know and then we'll be seeing reports down in texas that they're just pounding them and i've oftentimes just been scratching my head it's like it doesn't feel like enough birds have should have bypassed us to get all the way down there when our perception is they're up north but that so that makes sense that some birds just kind of go straight to where they're going more than and others kind of linger is that what you're saying yep that's
2: exactly what happens um you know, when you start talking about blue wings like that, um, you know, I've banded blue wings in, in Saskatchewan and in late October, I mean, late August. And then, um, a week or two later have, you know, harvest, um, of reports coming from, uh, those birds in Louisiana and Texas or in Kansas, uh, or in North Dakota. Um, you know, so, um, you know that that particular species is absolutely known for all the adult males picking up the first week of September and bailing out of the prairies and you know and heading to Louisiana or Texas hmm. and not too much longer, uh, later than that, they're in the Yucatan and, um, or down into Costa Rica.
1: <laughs> so, is that that's more of an adult uh behavior?
2: Yeah, I mean, they um, uh, they they it's funny in late August in, in, um, in central Saskatchewan, you catch a, an adult male, um, blueing one day, and it'll be a fat little football. And the next day you go out to and run your traps and you won't find a adult male, um, in the traps. They'll all be, um, juvenile birds or, or successful breeding, uh, females, adult females. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the males are all gone. They just, you know, picked up overnight and took off. Hmm.
1: Now is that typically weather dependent can, or is that kind of a count ca- on, on a calendar?
2: Differential migration? I'm sorry. I, I missed it.
1: Is that more weather dependent with when them getting out of there or is some of that just on a, on a calendar they'll just bail out?
2: It, it's not necessary. Um, um, it may be weather, but, it, uh, you know, it's, um, a pattern that has evolved over time. Um, um, you get all, all sorts of differential migration, which is what you're talking about, um, based upon photo period and weather and just conditions. They just it's ingrained in, in ingrained in them that, you know, first week of September, boom, they're gone. You know, that they need to be they need to be moving uh, someplace that's more secure.
1: It's always felt we get a lot of blue wing teal um, here in Kansas and our early teal seasons are just phenomenal. And and we've always kind of been of the opinion that blue-winged teal are a little more um, dependent on the calendar than the bigger ducks are. Is, would you agree with that, or do you think all ducks are the same with what pushes them to migrate?
2: Um, well, they all have different um, they all have different uh, clues that they use for uh, migrating. Blue-winged teal traditionally are a very early migrant and. Because they have that, um, because they have that pattern, that biological pattern of all the adult males, which is the, you know, the um, the least sensitive portion of the of the population, um, which is why you have a September teal teal season. Is is those are the ones you can afford to to harvest, and they move, you know, they move differentially, um, you know, from all the other uh, cohorts of uh, teal. And boom, um, they're available in in that short window of time. Um, And you, uh, and, and, you know, biologically, you can, you can take them. So we provided, uh, you know, provided you that opportunity to harvest them. Um, You know, other ducks, you know, big mallards, uh, canvasbacks, big bodied, they carry a lot of, you know, uh, of of fat um, in the fall. And, they move down um based upon um you know how many days there's been below freezing and whether the water is getting hard.
0: hmm Very cool. That's definitely so, uh, to, some cool to, information on that. And uh yeah. I tell you it is uh it's awesome that we uh, as hunters have that opportunity um to get on the, the early migration of blue wings. Um were you were you about to say something, Elliot? Or No. Okay. I,
2: I was going to say something about um, uh, finishing up the third part of the harvest survey and how it, it relates to hip, and that's the parts collection survey.
0: Okay, yeah, um, go ahead.
2: So hunters that participate in the mail questionnaire survey, if, if they agree to participate in that, um, a sample of those at the end of the season will be asked if they would be willing to submit um, wings and tail feathers from geese um, in the next year, and then um, just prior to the season, you'll get a package of um, envelopes from the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and um, a letter explaining with some instructions that they'd like you to take one wing off of each bird, um, each duck that you harvest, um, and submit, submit that um, and put it through the U.S. Postal Service uh, you know, with um, your information on where you harvested that bird. And it all goes um, back to the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, and at the end of the season, all the waterfowl biologists um, from the states and the and the Fish and Wildlife Service in each of the flyways get together for what's called a wing bee. You know, kind of an old term that came from sowing bees, where there was you know communal get together. And and so for a week, uh, the biologists would go through and sort out all, all the mallards and determine how many uh, were adult males versus adult females versus uh, immature uh, males or females, and they do that for all species uh, that are submitted in that flyway. So, if you're in the Atlantic flyway, you might um, be looking at black ducks and um, Atlantic, um, you know, eiders, or if you're in the Pacific flyway, you might be, um, you know, looking at blue wing teal and, or I mean, cinnamon teal and and pintails and, and mallards. Um, where in the Mississippi you might be looking at a lot of mallard and a lot of green wing teal wing Um, but that that is uh, the important information that's the final step in in estimating harvest um, and uh, completing the link but it all starts it all starts with getting um, name and address information uh, and the answers to those questions from the hunters and I, I definitely want uh, all the hunters listening to know that you know you're you play a very vital role in this data collection and getting getting your answers um, to those questions is um, an important step and um, encourage all of you to um, to answer those questions if you are buying your license um, at a store and they don't ask you, the clerk doesn't ask you that uh, those questions make sure that that you answer that you ask them about that and answer the uh, have them answer,
0: um, your questions. So you get put in the right category. Awesome. So kind of, um, kind of heading towards the, the wrap up of the the podcast. Um, a question I'd have for you is, and, and you may have answered it right there, kind of talking about what we should do with answering the questions, but what can we do as waterfowlers to help? And, you know, like you said, the, the importance of gathering this data and, um, pr- protecting, um, waterfowl and and the future of uh, of this sport
2: well i think the most important thing that waterfowlers um, can do um uh, besides buying their licenses and, and, and participating um in um in the harvest survey and reporting uh duck bands, is um, supporting the conservation efforts um, of the um you know the the, the the private uh, conservation groups out there, the habitat um, groups, the, the conservation uh, efforts for wildlife management areas by the um, by the, the state uh, fish and wildlife agency, and also the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, or other um, you know agencies that are protecting habitat that's important to waterfowl. You know, there's many states that have um, you know Corps of Engineers or Bureau of Reclamation. Or you know other agencies that um, protect habitat and provide places for hunters to participate in uh, you know the wonderful resource of um, waterfowl hunting and you know I'm hoping that my grandkids can can certainly enjoy some of the things that that I did and um, it takes all the efforts of all the hunters that care about waterfowl um, to make that sure that it happens. One thing I will say is. That if you look back over the last 50 years or 80 years um, and look at waterfowl uh, numbers now versus, uh, you know, previous times, compared to all other birds, waterfowl um, are uh, an outstanding um, success story. And it really shows that conservation works.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. That's uh, definitely uh, very important for the future of our sport. Um, So I want to let all the listeners know um, one of the really cool articles that we got sent over, um, the National Migration Bird Harvest Survey, um, and it gives all the data, some really cool charts, um, state-specific, flyway-specific, regional-specific, even down to the county and the rankings on that. So we're going to go ahead and and link that in uh, the Fellowship of the Duck Gun Um, So it'll be there for you guys to all check out as well. You can figure out which counties you want to scout in for next season, but uh, (laughs) uh, definitely some, some cool data on there. So uh, really appreciate you coming on. Um, Any last words you got for the listeners?
2: Well, one other, one other point on that, um, that summary you just gave is also you can look um, at different regions of the country and figure out when the high harvest periods are, Mm -hmm. but when basically that tells you when the best duck hunting is at that point. Um, so, so, tr- so, you know, don't overlook that as you're doing the, your, uh, your scouting for next year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can plan your, uh, out of state trips accordingly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Jordan, um, um, uh, and Elliot, uh, only concluding remarks is, uh, it's been wonderful. I'm hoping that, um, um, your listeners have found this information helpful. Um, you know, I've tried to provide you with some, um, some background, um, and I want all of the hunters to know that, um, that you know, there's, there's information out there, but all that information is based upon their participation. And so, um, you know, good, good quality data comes from, um, from the hunters and they're very important in, in that data collection effort.
0: Awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing this information and definitely valuable to us and, and all the other migratory bird hunters alike. So, um, you know, I think, I think with that, we'll go ahead and uh, sign off. So thank you again, Brad, for coming on. Also, uh, I'm Jordan from Duck and Chronicles, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting, and we'll see you guys on the next one.
1: All right. Thank you so much.